0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast, I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, we're going to continue our look at cytotechnology with my guest, Taryn Waraxa. On the show, we'll talk about Taryn's advanced certifications in cytotechnology. We'll talk about her work on the ASCP Laboratory, and we'll talk about the growing use of molecular diagnostics in cytology. Then, after the show, stay tuned for a preview of our next episode with Dr. Nicole Jackson. Now, here's Taryn Waraxa. All right. Hi, Taryn. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Hi, Dennis. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're a cytotechnologist, and I wanted to start a little bit about uh, your education and how you came to choose uh, cytotechnology as a career.
1: Sure. Um, when I was four, I had a Fisher price doctor's bag with like a plastic a cast, a reflex hammer, notepad, band-aids, all that stuff. And I would go around diagnosing and treating my parents and their friends and even my cats. And I always wanted to be a pediatrician, then okay. a neonatologist, then a medical examiner. And there was never a career choice outside of the world of like healthcare science. So my parents bought me my first microscope When I was eight, and I put everything on its stage hair, sand, food, wet mount slides galore. And I remember all of my science courses whenever we would have a microscopy module, I would fly through it. I was fully immersed in this magnified world, and I would just ace it. Yet I still wanted to be a doctor, and I still wanted to diagnose and make an impact on patients' lives. So I was taking this elective summer course in histology when a relative of mine was diagnosed with breast cancer over a decade ago, and that's when I recognized that like pathology and laboratory medicine was my specialty. So her sentinel lymph node had both a different morphological picture and immunohistochemical signature than the primary tumor, and I wanted to know why. Because her initial core biopsy only showed ductal carcinoma, yet post lumpectomy, her sentinel node was diagnosed as metastatic lobular. So I'm like, where's the primary tumor? I just, I needed answers, and my family needed answers. Meanwhile, I had majored in biology with a minor in global public health and undergrad at Arcadia University, and I was writing my bachelor's thesis on the role of antidepressants in hippocampal neurogenesis. And I realized that med school was a huge jump and a large financial and time commitment, but I still wanted the higher education. And I had no idea what to do until a 2 a.m. panicked Google search of, what am I doing with my life? And the Google search terms were microscope, career, diagnosis, master's degree. All of a sudden, like the clouds parted, the sunbeams hit my face, and the first result in the Google search was a 30-minute train ride away to Thomas Jefferson University's Master of Science in Cytotechnology degree. It was a one-year, 53-credit accelerated master's program, and I applied, lived in self-doubt that I would ever be accepted to the program. And when I received the acceptance email in the middle of my thesis class, I yelped, I ran over to my advisor, I shared the good news, and I lived with imposter syndrome when I found out that I was one of six students in this program. But learning about these different cells and these tissues, all these infectious agents and the disease processes, it only confirmed that this was exactly what I was meant to do and everything just came naturally. Well, except for deciphering between like reactive mesothelial cells and all that fun stuff, but I'd like to call that continuing education.
0: You're a specialist in cytotechnology, and I've heard of the CT certification, but not the SCT. What's the difference between the two?
1: So the CT is the ASCP entry-level cytotechnology certification. Um, It enables graduates to practice in the field of cytotechnology, and it's not necessarily like a legal requirement, but your employer might require it. And they kind of hire you on the condition that you'll eventually pass the board exam. From what I've seen, it's more commonplace than not. But whether you're a CT or an SCT, you can practice the same job responsibilities because the field's upward mobility comes with experience and on-the-job training. But the SCT certification is for cytotechs with at least three years' experience as a certified cytotechnologist. And they desire to be recognized as specialists in field and follow the supervisor, or senior-level tech tech. So I took my specialist certification exactly three years after I passed my entry-level certification. It just seemed like the next logical step. And I still can not believe when the screen said passed when I finally submitted my answers, but my supervisor had been cross-training me to compile all of the monthly and annual QA statistics in our department, prepare the annual budget, um, perform validation studies on new equipment and techniques, and lead new projects such as our new lab interface system with bar specimen tracking. So other than my supervisor, I'm the only specialist in my institution, and I love all those added responsibilities, and I really enjoy the balance between the normal cytotech duties and all the ancillary TAPC functions of leading. It's kind of funny that with the specialist exam, it was actually easier than the initial cytotech exam for me, but I'm assuming that's just from the experience I acquired in this first three years. But the specialist exam focuses on more FNA and lab operations content than the initial exam. So I think the entry level cytotech had 15% lab ops and the specialist had like an upward of 40% lab ops. There's a plethora of budget, immunohistochemistry, molecular test questions, all of those ancillary studies that I featured in the graduate level course that I created at Jefferson. So I may or may not have had like a bit of an advantage there.
0: So you have an additional certification with the International Academy of Cytology and have actually never heard of this one. Why did, why did you go for this one? Why was that important to you?
1: So, it, again, it kind of just seemed like the next logical step here. When I went to the American Society for Cytotechnology Annual Conference in Puerto Rico in 2019, um, it was two years after my specialist exam, and I, along with eight other cytotechs attending the conference, decided to apply and sit for this specific comprehensive examination. It was all Kodachromes screening whole slides, making the two-part diagnosis where under calling you lose points, overcalling you don't lose as much, but it was a three hour test. I thought for sure that I bombed it. I left the exam. I was sullen, mopey. I went back to my room, changed into my wetsuit, headed down to the beach for some scuba diving to clear my head, stop overthinking, all that good right. stuff.
0: Wait, so you, you just decided right there to take the exam, like without any preparation?
1: Yeah, I just, well, I prepared a little bit. I I had applied ahead of time, but yeah, I, I didn't even know what to study there. It was just so foreign to me. I had no idea what would be on it and we kind of don't have this international diagnostic terminology system set up right so i didn't know over in germany what they would call so and so and i i just i felt like i was gonna bomb it but i just decided to take it anyway because it was important to me
2: uh-huh.
1: um so it took six weeks to hear back whether or not i passed and i was really just sad and frustrated and didn't know what to do and i received the congratulatory email at 6 a.m And I sprinted into work like I won the lottery. And again, like it just seemed like the next logical step for me. Because cancer isn't a threat in the United States alone. It's worldwide. And almost everyone in the world knows somebody affected by cancer. So to be part of this organization that encourages this international science of cytology, it was a large-scale dream for me. Um, I had first learned about the academy when I was in school. And I kind of put it on the back burner to see where I would go with my career. But it's amazing to have these cytopathologists and cytotechs across the world just working together to achieve this globally uniform platform for cytodiagnostics.
0: Right. So, and this is, you said this is based out of Germany? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's and so,
1: headquarters is.
0: Okay. Do they have some kind of like annual, I mean, I guess before when there were conferences, do they have in like an annual conference? Have you have you participated they, in something like that?
1: They do. I forget exactly what it's called, but I think it's like the International Congress or something like that. So people from all over the world, cytopathologists and cytotechnologists, get together and they convene. in I think it's usually Vienna. Last year, maybe it wasn't Vienna. I'm not sure. My um, cytopathologist director went there, but okay. it's just really fascinating. It's just all over the world, we're just cytotech and cytopathologists together, just having a yeah, common that, ground.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Um, do you have like continuing education credits, like you have to do for an ASCP certification?
1: We do. We have to show that we're fully employed. Um, we have to either write some publications. Um, there, there's a litany there of things that you have to submit and. I believe you get recertified, I think it's every five years. So it's kind okay. of like the credential maintenance program that we have for ASCP. for every three years, you have to submit a certain amount of continuing education credits. Um, and then they'll send you like a new sticker to put on your certificate to say that, yes, you're still certified by the IAC.
0: Okay. And has this certification gotten you any more responsibilities at, at your job?
1: It has. It definitely has again, like with all of the QA statistics that I've been doing, and mm-hmm. you know, like leading that co-path project that we had. Um, it it's definitely been opening some doors.
0: <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. It seems like that the, the F and A procedures part of the job is something that you really enjoy. It, it, am I am I assuming correctly? And and if I am, what is it about that that you enjoy? What it was it that you really like?
1: You are absolutely assuming correctly. I love that patient and care team interaction. We're first on the scene for a diagnosis. And, like you know, radiologists can infer based on imaging that a lesion appears to be infectious or malignant. But based on the cells and the properties on the slide, cytotex can tell you what kind of infection. Like is it TB? Is it aspergillus? Or the type of malignancy, like within reason, primary versus metastatic, adeno versus squamous cell carcinoma even pancreatitis versus pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing what one can tell you. And then we see the differentiation of the malignant cells too. We can see if it's a well-differentiated adenocarcinoma, resembling similar features to benign glandular cells, or if it's poorly differentiated, indicating a more aggressive tumor. So we see that. And then I really enjoy lung cancer staging via endobronchial ultrasound. So the patient might have these PET-AVID lymph nodes on imaging, but the clinicians don't know why they're PET-AVID, and so we examine those cells under the microscope. So if it looks malignant on imaging, it could just be a reactive lymph node with anthropotic pigment due to the patient's smoking history. So it's really humbling to be on the front lines working alongside the radiologist or the clinician, as well as like the nurses and the rest of the diagnostic imaging techs and our cohort of medical lab professionals because we can draw this patient's clinical puzzle together and it's just knowing that i have such a critical role in helping the patient it gives me such a sense of like pride and purpose and honor i just really enjoy this
0: yeah yeah how is the or how have the fna procedures changed like the precautions and things during the you know times of covid now
1: so in diagnostic imaging we have been wearing the isolation gowns um, for droplet precautions, face shields or goggles, um, surgical masks are fine down there. But it's different. We try to limit our time in the actual procedure room as much as possible. Sure. Down in, in our EMB suite where we do endoscopies and bronchoscopies, we're in the N95 mask, we're in the full, full garb, like the bouffants on our hair, um, a full mm-hmm. gown, and then we have lead on top of that. And a thyroid collar on top of that, so you know we're just we're sweating galore down there. But um, yeah. again, it's just it's limiting that time that we're spending in the procedure rooms, just trying to get back into the lab, get all of our gear off, and just hope for the best. And we still have a high patient volume because cancer just doesn't stop. COVID cannot prevent cancer from developing and metastasizing, and we have to diagnose our patients as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point and um, something that's kind of coming to light in the news and things with COVID testing and uh, treatment. It's like we still have our regular work that we have to do. Like you said, you know, cancer doesn't stop for COVID. That, that's, that's a great point.
1: Thank you. It's something that I think a lot of people forget about when they're, you know, not going through with their annual screenings. They're like, oh, you know, I, I can put off the mammogram. Right. Until next year, all of this dies down. But that's not necessarily the truth. Like, you have to stick to what your screening guidelines say, and you have to just put yourself first. Yeah. You have to keep up with your health.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You recently started writing for the ASCP blogatory, and I think you've done, what, two articles already? Yes. Um, okay. Um, so how did, how did this happen? Did they approach you or did you approach them to offer your, your services or what, what happened?
1: So Kelly, the editor of the blog, she reached out to me after the ASCP 40 Under 40 press release. And she asked if I'd be interested in being a for contributor. And without hesitation, I, I responded yes. I've always enjoyed writing like creative narratives. Like Throughout grad school, I was that person that would write poems and lyrics and short stories and stuff. Oh, okay. because I'm a lefty. I don't know. Hmm. Um, but they say that there's both an art and science behind psychopathology. So I guess I was meant for a more creative field.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um,
1: yeah. So I don't know. It, it was just kind of amazing that she had asked me like, of all people. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I just, I was really thrilled.
0: Yeah. So it, do you have like a sort of a theme in mind of the articles you're going to write or is just sort of of whatever strikes you at the time
1: i do um one of my favorite aspects of working at this cancer center i get to see all of these rare tumors that we only briefly studied in school if at all so Mm -hmm. we see chordomas thymomas hibernomas and some pathologists and techs go their entire career without seeing these tumors so for the blogatory, I'd like to kind of bring those interesting cases that I've encountered to life and have a healthy and organized balance between scientific and narrative content. And then I'll also discuss some of the issues and tricky scenarios that cybertechs and other lab professionals might encounter in the field and how to maintain your passion for pathology and lab medicine.
2: Okay.
0: That sounds very interesting. I, I look forward to those. You, you mentioned in your first article, it was... It was- called beggars can be choosers and this i guess this is something i never thought of but when you're doing the fna procedures and you kind of you know you get to okay specimens adequate and the radiologist wants to stop and you're you're talking about how you know you need more tissue and more material for for because there are a lot more tests these days
1: right absolutely um radiologists kind of have this and they're amazing. I mean, they can oh, yeah. hit, like I said, they they can hit a moving target mm-hmm. from miles away, but they don't know how much more is required for all of these ancillary studies. So when we go down there and we're like, all right, we need three more passes for cell block and four core biopsies, like, but you're adequate. If you have enough sample on the slides. Why isn't that sufficient? And I'll have to go through the litany of like, Oh, I need this for chemistry and EGFR analysis and oh I need the core biopsy for PDL one testing and I have to like break it down for them and, and educate them as well with all the new tests that are coming out. So it, it, it's hard because we're called greedy and it's not a term that I like to use but it's just part of the part of the job and part of this evolving field and guaranteeing that the patient doesn't have to come back for another biopsy that this first time around is like I said their only time around
0: right yeah I imagine there's nothing worse than having to have a repeat biopsy and then you know in that same article you mentioned a term that uh, I've heard but I don't really know very much about it's, it's theranastics. Um, and you also mentioned yes. that in your ASCP 40 under 40 video Can we talk about what is Theranostics and what's it used for?
1: Sure. Uh, Theranostics is an emerging field. It's the future of precisional treatment, specifically for cancer patients. So in this world of personalized medicine, and other than eradicating cancer altogether, Theranostics is kind of the next best thing. And it combines two words, therapeutics and diagnostics. So what better than to be able to diagnose and treat in one setting, right?
0: Right. Um,
1: It's a point-of-care-like field that enables lab professionals to distinguish between and diagnose a patient-specific disease type and then also allow for selection of the most targeted patient-centered therapy possible. So specifically for cytopathology, we're using morphology and immunohistochemical markers Along with molecular profiling to formulate both a diagnostic and prognostic value on the patient's tumor, and then the care team can quickly and more precisely select a targeted therapy that will work best for the patient. So we can make a diagnosis of small cell carcinoma today and start the patient on treatment. We're just we're moving that quickly on helping the patient and just trying to prevent anything from metastasizing and just getting them the best treatment possible just nip their
0: cancer in the back okay well i didn't realize it was that that quick um and this is like the treatment is uh tailored just for the particular type of tumor that the patient has it's it's uh very specific
1: exactly. whatever tumor expresses or doesn't express we're selecting a targeted therapy specifically.
0: okay and how, how did you learn about this is that was that part of your cytology well, training
1: Kind of. When I was studying for the specialist exam, I was reading through Blair Holiday's Cytopathology Review Guide, and he had a huge factor on varianose. And the more I read through it and did some like, questions, I'm like, you know what? This really is the future of our field. And then when I saw my job branching out into more molecular techniques, I was like, this is absolutely the direction that we're going, and we have to. We can't just assume that you know one chemo regimen is sufficient for everybody that has breast cancer or everybody that has lung adenocarcinoma. Right. You really have to look at that specific patient's tumor and target the therapy based on that.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you, you mentioned the the molecular diagnostics, and it is growing in you know all of pathology. How do you how do you keep up with with that? Because it seems to expand pretty rapidly,
1: it is definitely expanding rapidly. Um, We have a molecular diagnostics lab, and every time a new test comes out, our cytopathologists that also work as molecular pathologists they kind of keep us informed of like, hey, this is this new test. Um, When you go on an FMA, this is what you need. This is how much you need for cell block. How many core biopsies you should obtain. So it's kind of nice to have that inside knowledge, but for fine needle aspiration, like the tissue cell block,
2: mm-hmm.
1: initially it was reserved for immunohistochemistry diagnostics and prognostics only, but now we're using cell block tissue for EGFR analysis on lung biopsies with non-small cell lung cancer. So as more and more of these molecular tests are approved for cell block tissue rather than core biopsy and infection tissue. We can rely on minimally invasive procedures to diagnose, stage, and treat patients. Going back to that topic of theranostics, right? So another really fascinating point is the feasibility of obtaining whole or intact cells from smears, not just cell block sections, because the smears will contain one hundred percent of the DNA content because that cell is still whole and intact, whereas the histology section might only contain fifty to seventy percent of the DNA content. Because it's a section tissue, uh-huh. so we can essentially do more with less if the specimens is too rich in cytology.
0: So they they can take the cells directly off of a smear.
1: Yes, that is one of the latest huh. techniques. We personally don't do it at Prochus Cancer Center. I'm waiting until we do because that will help our yield tremendously.
0: Sure, sure. Do you need you? You mentioned that you know the, you work with the cytopathologist as far as how many, uh, how much material you need. Is it different for uh, different organ types or different uh, cancer types?
1: It can vary. Uh, lung cancers, we typically always obtain an fma and a core, just for we typically save the core for the molecular tests. Okay. And the, but you know, breast cancer, it's it's pretty much the same thing. We can do ELPR her 2 On the FNA and then reserve the core biopsy for oncotyping. Okay. I would like to say that, I like to say it's different, but it it goes back to us being greedy and just needing as much material as possible because we can save that material if there's a new molecular test that comes out. We have safe sections on both the cell block and um, the section tissue or the core biopsy tissue where we can just pull that section at any time. And send it for
0: analysis. Wow, that's pretty amazing. That that, so, that molecular yeah. testing has sure the come a long you way. hmm hmm It definitely is. Yeah. And you can, I mean, those core biopsies are what, like a millimeter in diameter. That's that's impressive you can get that much information from something that small.
1: it's phenomenal. Yeah. It
0: really is. So you mentioned earlier the ASCP forty under forty thing. Uh, so you're a two thousand twenty honoree. So, what was that experience like? Did you did you know you had been nominated? And you know, what what like what kind of things did you have to do?
1: Oh my gosh! So when I applied, I showed one of our PAS at Fox Chase, Janelle Fabian. She's a 2018 40 under forty honoree.
0: Oh yeah, I know her. I
1: showed her my application. You do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, she's amazing. Yeah, she's
0: really really cool.
1: Yeah, she's our lead PA, and she's just she's a rock star. Like I'll go uh-huh. to her for everything. Um, I, was like, I love that you know her <laughs> yeah. um, I showed her my application and I asked her I was like do you think I stand a chance with all of these people and she said yes so I submitted the application and I waited eight weeks and I checked my email far too often for a yay or a nay uh-huh. and I was just I, I think I just have that self doubt like imposter syndrome I really do um, I just kept thinking like you know it's a nay it's not going to happen but when I got that acceptance or that congratulatory email I just I I went to my employer and I showed my supervisor I showed my medical director um I was like you can't tell anybody but um I just I lost my head I, I couldn't believe this happened and from the clinicians to the staff that I work with they read the employer's email blast with my press release and then my alma mater Jefferson they interviewed me for their a Get My Job Spotlight on Cytotechnology article.
0: Oh, yeah, I saw that.
1: And it's just been, um, it's been bringing my career as a cytotech and then this entire field of cytotechnology to light. It's just, it, it really has opened so many doors for me. And then all of the daily voting for the top five by my family, my friends, colleagues, they just showed such immense support for my career and my field and for ASCP. Yeah. And now being a monthly contributor for the blogatory and being a guest on your podcast, the opportunities are limitless.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's very great. Uh, You know, congratulations on that. That's that's a really cool honor.
1: Thank you so much. I'm still on Cloud Nine that this happened. Being the only Cytotech on the list.
0: Oh, I didn't realize (laughs) that. Wow, that's that must feel really good.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like very, very good. It's just, I always believe that if you find your dream career and you just pursue your passions, there's no ceiling. Mm-hmm. And now with this recognition, there's there's a great deal of truth behind that.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. So I think you mentioned a little, a little bit about this earlier, but the, the patient contact that the cytotechnologists get, I, I think it's important. And, it, you know, there's a lot of... The lab personnel, we don't get a lot of recognition because we're not, we normally don't have patient contact. And this connection that cytotechnologists have with the patients, do do you think that's important? Do you think it helps raise awareness about the lab?
1: Yes, but with a bit of a caveat. So I think it depends on the cytotech because some techs prefer that private lab setting where... The specimens are predominantly GYN samples or pap smears and fluid cytology and especially the more introverted techs where they can still save lives without that potentially awkward interaction with a patient or a care team member. Um, There's also flexibility for those techs that they don't have to be on call or work within hospital business hours, but then those cytotechs that are more introverted and crave that direct care team and patient interaction, then absolutely yes. I feel like they have to have some patient contact. Like I know that I thrive on rapid on-site evaluations because I love that first responder feeling.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a few institutions where fellows and pathologists attend the epidermis rather than the cytotechs. But for those techs that want to attend biopsies, I think there should kind of be a hybrid option to allow for that. After all, we're, we're trained in identifying any kind of cellular abnormality. And we screen everything right. before sending the case, like specifically non and abnormal GYNs, to the pathologist. So our eyes are the foremost diagnostic tool, and we serve as the primary screeners finding those you know, most representative cells for the pathologist to make the final diagnosis. And as far as making people aware of us in the lab, I do. I, I enjoy putting a face to the name and a story to the cells. There are still a few patients who think that cytology means psychology. (laughs) Oh, really? And I quickly pat in the butt when I see the fear on the patient's face. I'm like, oh, no, no, I promise I'm not from there. (laughs) (laughs) And I always make it clear that I'm also not there to draw any blood because there is an assumption that all lab people are phlebotomists.
0: Sure. Um, Yeah.
1: It's it's interesting. Don't worry. I'm not here. I'm not Dracula. But there are times when I'm left alone in the procedure room with the patient. And I know for more introverted texts, this might make them very uncomfortable. But the patients could be full of questions. And I try to answer them within my scope of practice. And then there's other times where the patient might be uncomfortable or scared. And I'm there in between processing needle passes to hold
0: their hand. Oh, okay.
1: Like the story I featured in my second blog on the blogatory, that yes. it's personal. The, the key to never losing your passion is to always remember why you got into the field to begin with. You have to feel for the patient and fight for the patient, whether it's behind the scope in a private lab or in a procedure room with other members of the care team. You just always have to put the patient first. And I, I hope that either having our name signed off on, you know, a pap smear report or the patient seeing our face in a procedure room, I hope that. Gives them some feeling of security, knowing that we're here for them as members of the law.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think that's very important. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is completely off topic, you're a, a rescue diver. So it's I want to know how did you? You mentioned a little bit about this before that you went down to the beach after you took the uh, the International Academy of Cytology exam. Um, so how did you get into diving?
1: Okay, please don't laugh, but I love mermaids, and when I was three, I went to Florida and saw women in these mermaid tails performing underwater acrobatics, and I was just in awe. And so you can tell from my life ambitions, I started at a very young age and
0: never faltered. Right. Me.
1: So my Twitter handle is actually Cytomermaid.
0: Oh, that's right. Okay. Now it makes sense.
1: I am... <laughs> it all makes sense. When I learned how to swim and eventually snorkeled, I went to freshwater springs in Florida and I was like, I want to breathe underwater. I want to see what's down there. So a few years passed and I turned to my now fiance and I said, Let's get scuba certified. Let's do it. So we started with an open water certification in a quarry and then we traveled to Jamaica. We came home and took our advanced certification. And then we became nitrox certified. So that's where you use a higher oxygen percentage than your atmospheric air. And I did some diving in Florida and then diving in Puerto Rico for the ISA exam. And last summer we wanted to be safer and more responsible divers. So we took the rescue diver certification and then got an additional emergency oxygen provider cert. And we did this to be able to. To see diving accidents before they actually happen and just help wherever and whenever needed. So last month we also got our peak performance buoyancy certification to help us more streamlined in the water and to become more cognizant of our buoyancy in those you know, fragile aquatic environments. I think my favorite diving spots are these freshwater caverns in Florida. They're all like in central Florida and they're limestone. Okay. These caverns are found in like Old cow pastures and they can go up to 105 feet. feet. Oh, wow. But the visibility water, I mean, it's spring water. You could easily drink it if you wanted to. There's 200 meter visibility. It's crystal clear. Wow. I am so sad that COVID kind of ruined my plans because I was supposed to go down in May and then again in July. So now I'm holding off to fingers crossed December. But diving down there is, is therapeutic to me. And then these caverns so anything with an overhead environment is considered a cavern but when you lose the penetration of ambient light it's then considered a cave okay and the way the water has carved out these spaces like winding and twisting throughout the limestone it is magnificent structures that only your dive light can illuminate and it's so alluring so cave diving is definitely my next step in my diving adventure um We'll see. we'll see how that goes, because there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of safety issues, mm. and it's just a hidden world under there.
0: Big thanks to Taryn Waraxa. Now, if you want to learn more about the things we talked about today, go to the website and look at the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And, of course, you can also follow the show on Twitter at People of Path. And if you know someone who might find this episode interesting, please share it with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologists Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now, here's a preview of our next episode with Dr. Nicole Jackson.
2: What I have experienced in my brief career is that people do not view forensic pathologists as first responders. You could see this in COVID, you know, people think of emergency room physicians, which they are, nurses, but we are also first responders. Uh, you know, we're some of the first physicians and people to see what is killing us as a community, as a population, as a nation, you know, in real time, we don't have to wait for people to aggregate data to see there's a trend and in increase in overdose deaths during the, the COVID pandemic. You know, we are seeing this right now as it's happening. And I think people aren't recognizing that. And so, you know, prior to COVID, Um, the medical examiner and coroner system in the U.S., you know, it was understaffed and it's overtaxed, right? So they're estimated to be approximately four to 500 full-time board-certified forensic pathologists to do the work of about 11 to 1200. And this was before COVID and we all know, you know, everything's gotten worse. Um, And so there was a disinvestment in the system. And so when COVID hit, um, a lot of people, were pressed, you know, across multiple disciplines, but a lot of autopsies weren't performed on these COVID-related tests, which I think is a real big missed opportunity. Because a lot of what we know from influenza that came from autopsy series, you know, and we don't we're not having that for COVID because offices weren't able to do that for a multitude of reasons. You know, whether that's a safety precaution, um, or just being in, you know, overwhelmed with cases, but that's a lot of lost information that we really need as we do not understand this virus fully and what it's, what's going on.
0: For more from Dr. Jackson, tune into the next episode of the People of Pathology podcast.